0: Welcome along to the Brain for Business, Brain for Life podcast with me, Lawrence Snell, where we take the lessons from evidence based academic research, most particularly involving the brain and behavioral sciences, and translate them in a way that's accessible for leaders and organizations. Today, I'm delighted to welcome to the episode Dr. Zoe Walkington. Zoe is a senior lecturer in the School of Psychology and Counseling at the Open University and also Deputy Director for Learning in the Open University Center for Policing Research and Learning. Zoe, it's great to have you with us. Thanks very much for asking me. Oh, delighted you're here. So perhaps you, you might start by telling us a little bit about yourself. What's what's your, your background, academic and, and so on?
1: Um, uh, yes. Yeah, so I started out actually um, working in financial recruitment after my degree. Um, my first degree was in psychology, um, so that's kind of where I cut my teeth, if you like, uh, in my early career. And obviously, at that time, spent a lot of time interviewing people, which is a theme that keeps coming back in my career. Um, I then got really interested in actually returning to psychology and I decided to do um, an MSc in Applied Forensic Psychology. And I did that just distance learning alongside my normal job. Um, and then from that, got more and more interested in that kind of academic side and I suppose less and less motivated um, by the recruitment side. And so decided to become a lecturer. And then I went on to do a PhD um, and I've ended up sort of fully immersed, if you like, um, as a an academic psychologist, but I do still do quite a lot of work in training. For example, I do quite a lot of work um, training detectives with the police. So that kind of, and all of that training, interestingly, is about interviewing. Um, so there's a kind of theme that has sort of underpinned the slightly circuitous journey that I've taken with my career.
0: Uh, it sounds interesting. Quite a quite a journey you, you've taken. So, I, I guess from that, what what would be your your, your really big sort of area of, of research and focus? Is it that 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 sort of that interviewing? Is it that that talking to people aspect?
1: Well, I've always been really interested in kind of what goes on between people and how they talk to each other. But actually, when I look at sort of what fundamentally underpins what I do, it's actually about story or narrative. Um, So. I feel a bit like stories have kind of followed me around (laughs) and they won't go away. Uh, They keep creeping up on me, if you like. So when I did my Ph.D. research, I was actually trying to research something that was totally unrelated to stories. I was trying to research how witnesses interpret ambiguous um, crime scenes that they come across. So, for example, somebody that comes across um, somebody who's been found um, dying or dead and they come across an ambiguous scene. How do they actually interpret that? And psychology would tend to say they'll interpret it using schema or scripts, you know, that we will bring our expectations of what we think's happened to how we interpret something. And that's kind of what I was hoping to prove. And I was hoping to tie it in with memory. And to an extent I did, but I found this really weird finding in my PhD, which I couldn't ignore, and then had to kind of change the direction of my PhD to an extent, which was that people are very creative in their thinking. And I didn't feel that, the way that people interpret ambiguous um, criminal incidents would be as storied as it was. And actually, I found all this out by just asking a control question in one of my experiments and realised that people were coming up with incredibly complicated and detailed narratives to explain what they'd seen in this crime scene. Um, And I found that really fascinating. And it kind of got me onto the idea that stories a kind of doing something to us. There's there's something that we use to explain uncertainty. But then later on in my career, um, I wanted to look at how to improve empathy towards um, people like offenders, for example. And again, um, one of the things I discovered from reading other people's work was that actually reading stories about other people is really effective in terms of improving empathy, in reducing prejudice, uh, in improving people's well-being and um, improving their self-concept, and so I kind of again have returned to this idea that story is absolutely vital and almost magical in the impacts it can actually have on us psychologically. So,
0: when when we're thinking about stories in that sense, and particularly if I understand you correctly, you're talking about say a crime scene or or, or or an incident where a crime may have happened. Is that perhaps veering towards sense-making rather than seeing things as a a random series of bits and events, but actually perhaps trying to make sense of it through the form of that narrative?
1: I think you're absolutely right. I think one of the things that stories and um, schema, so kind of uh, common Um, building blocks of how we understand things, uh, they do is they reduce uncertainty. And I think one of the things that at times of uncertainty, what human beings do is they pattern spot. So, for example, uh, at times of economic uncertainty, a lot more people go and see psychics, (laughs) uh, which sounds like a slightly strange example. But it goes to show that uncertainty means that people will clutch other things to to pattern spot, to give them certainty. And there's a lovely, neat little research finding about people that jump out of planes, um, parachute jumpers. If you show them a kind of visual image of white noise, they're more likely to think they can see a person in it just before they jump out of a plane than if you show them the same thing when they're still on the ground. (laughs) which I think is a a great example. So I think, yes, that's one of the things that that is going on. And that's certainly the thing that I kind of found in my PhD. But to me, that's maybe not the most interesting thing that's going on. The most interesting thing is how stories in some way change us and motivate us. So, for example, I mentioned that I do a lot of... um, training of detectives and one of the things that we will always do when we're um, working with detectives and we're training them is we will present them with a case scenario i.e a story of what has gone on and then present them with um, actors to interview in that scenario and we found that that kind of immersion that you get through presenting someone with a a scenario or story seems to really, really motivate the learning, and I also found the same when I was uh, working in a face-to-face university. Obviously, I now work in an online university, but I used to work um, at uh, a university where we taught students face-to-face, and I used to create these kind of crime scenarios for students to to drive their learning. So the entire module would be kind of a series of bits of information about a particular criminal incident which if you like the student was following the investigation and applying psychology to it as they went along the investigation and I could visibly see the impact this was having on my students in terms of they would be turning up to these sessions with their timelines Um, their investigative timeline drawn out and they'd be literally thumping the table saying when am I going to get the forensics you know they wanted that next stage of the story they wanted um, they wanted to know what was going to happen and so to me that kind of there's so many ways different ways that story can be used it seems to me to be a, a kind of very powerful thing
0: and it strikes me from what you're saying. On the one hand, you have that the the people that you were working with in that particular situation were looking for a story to emerge from what you were perhaps presenting them with or the scenario you were giving them. But at the same time, they were also trying to retrofit a story back onto it. As you said, they were coming along with their timeline. So they're trying to, to kind of put the two together uh, in order for, for the the power and the the actual understanding to come through again, am I am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, I
1: think you are, and I think that's one of that kind of leads me on to um, to something else that's quite interesting about stories as kind of a method of communication rather than a way of thinking, because one of the things that um, I certainly noticed in my PhD research, so a separate bit of my PhD that I, that, I, that I didn't speak about earlier, was also looking at how people actually navigate um, storied information in police interviews. Um, and one of the things that sounds blindingly obvious, but that people tend to fail pr- to prepare for, is that when you tell a version of a story, and someone else has a slightly different version of it, Uh, their reality of it, if you like, or their version of events, you tend to get kind of what I would call conversational trouble. You know, when you get a clash of two different versions of events, that's when you can expect some uh, sort of conversational difficulty. And if you think about it, that's kind of relates to the fact that that, that stories do two different things, they tell and they sell. So there's a kind of rhetorical angle to a story that does in a weird way kind of identity work so if i'm trying to give a particular version of myself i might choose a particular story to tell you about myself so i have given a man a tattoo now me choosing to tell you that story which is true i have given a man a tattoo gives you i'm aware gives you a certain impression i've chosen to tell that story it gives you a a version of myself you see what I mean it does identity work for me and one of the other things that I've got quite interested in recently is looking at how organizations like the police can kind of manage their corporate identity I suppose um, to an extent through things like the the things that they post on their Facebook sites for example that the particular stories they choose to cover uh, actually kind of have quite an impact Um, But of course, it's never as simple as I just get to tell you a story and expect the story to land exactly how I anticipated it would land with you. The audience, and especially in this day and age where you've got um, kind of things like social media, where lots of people are connecting um, as an audience that are kind of quite active in how they receive a story, they're getting to shape it too. So it's not like the kind of old days of press media where you used to be able to just sort of release a story and that was the story nowadays in social media everyone else gets to chip in on the story as well um so that kind of identity work is is quite interesting as well I think for for organizations and 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 their leaders.
0: It reminds me you mentioned social media there and the power of stories but then also the power of I guess the consumers for want of a better term of social media, but it reminds me of a tweet I came across recently where the chief constable of a of a particular UK police force was meeting a particular branch of the organization that he that he leads and he happened to be uh, to post a photo he posted this photo himself of himself with with a rifle and obviously, most uk police forces are typically unarmed, and then this led to a whole series of discussions about what's he doing, what what uh, what message is he sending, carrying a rifle in a particular situation and, and and so people were were he was trying to tell one story about engaging perhaps with the uh, the rank and file members of the police force, but this was taken and interpreted in a very different way.
1: yeah, people can people can reshape on social media, they can reshape any story um, and, you know, very be very active in its telling. You know, the story doesn't belong with the person who tells it necessarily anymore. Um, the story. I mean, and that's always been the case. I mean, I, I suppose you can go back to to a much older storytelling practices and probably say the same thing to an extent. But I think nowadays, the way that stories are getting told is a lot less kind of um, canon, canon sort of big stories that this is the this is the definite story and there is no revisability to it. Now they're much more kind of messy and fragmented, certainly in how they're getting told on uh, places like social media sites.
0: And and I think even if you go back to the story you mentioned there about the tattoo, even if we were to take that, you could, if you were to put yourself obviously in the position of the person telling that story, you might say, well, I gave the person a tattoo because I'm good at art and the person wanted a particular form of tattoo and I was able to do that and I was doing them a favour. Or you could say, I was forced to do it, it was a terrible mistake, the person didn't want it, but etc. And how you deliver it. And then equally, if we were to ask them what their perception was, um, and then there's all these stories about people going on holidays to to, to Greece and the south of Spain and getting drunk and getting tattoos, but that's a whole different discussion. But but all all of these things kind of playing together in terms of how stories are, are interpreted and told and And does that perhaps suggest that the the true meaning is, is not necessarily one or the other, but somehow merges between people?
1: I think so. And I think it's it's an interesting feature of story that probably one of the most memorable features of our conversation. The thing that people will be able to say afterwards is it was the one where she'd given a man a tattoo because those little bits of storied information are the bits that we kind of remember well and that we're able to kind of hold on to Um, you know quite often when you hear motivational speakers speak um, Uh, you will notice that they will tell a lot of stories because it's engaging and you know we love to hear them and um, you know when you when you listen to um, quite often charitable organisations have kind of tapped into the idea that you know quite rightly that people will donate more if you tell them a story about one person rather than some give them you know, statistical facts suggesting that you know, I don't know, twenty percent of the population in this particular country are affected by this. It's kind of less powerful than someone's individual narrative, if that makes sense.
0: It, it does, and and uh, you know, without wanting to go too too far down a particular rabbit hole, if we, you know, the reality <laughs> obviously is that at the moment there's a, the whole COVID nineteen crisis, and and I know some countries have taken a very, I guess politician-led approach. So the the daily briefings are led by the political leaders. Other countries on the other hand have taken a very scientific approach where the daily briefings are led by the scientists, the the doctors, the chief medical officers or whoever, uh, and and you may not necessarily see the politicians so much. So does that perhaps influence how these stories about what is going on in the world at the moment are are landing and being interpreted and the actions that people take?
1: Yeah, I think I think they do. So I think, I mean, that I think it was Bruner that that said, um, you know, many many years ago that there are kind of two basic um, modes of um, communication, and and they are the narrative uh, mode and then the what he called the paradigm paradigmatic mode. Um, so the kind of more what he meant by that logical scientific mode. And there's been some really interesting research about how, I'll give you the example of courtrooms. So in courtrooms, quite often, somebody, a witness has a story to tell about what they saw, but they might be because the legal practitioner that is, that is interviewing them in the, in the courtroom wants to get a kind of um, scientific factual account they will question them in such a way that extracts the information in a non-storied way and then what you end up with is a whole load of witnesses that are really frustrated because they feel they haven't been able to tell their story so there's this clash of these two ways of speaking that are not working together you've got the kind of logical scientific versus the storied and when they clash you tend to find um trouble for communication um and people feeling frustrated and all the rest of it and there's been a lot of work um done by that d- done about that by a guy called chris heffer who's looked at sort of partic- particularly this kind of idea of um, legal discourse um but i think you can see its applications in an awful lot of um settings um you know and particularly i think at the moment and I think, you know, there there are, there are opportunities at the moment though, in terms of kind of going back to some of the bigger and more fixed stories. I know we've been talking about these kind of more messy and fragmented stories, the type of stories that get told on social media. But if you go back to literature and some of the kind of great novels and all the rest of it, there's also been a whole load of really interesting work around how, um, those sorts of bigger stories and people's engagement with them um, can be quite personally transformative. So some of the research that I've done has looked at how um, people's engagement with books, people's engagement with um, stories versus factual content has actually had um, beneficial impact on how empathic they then, then feel to other people. And interestingly, how empathic they feel to other people who are perhaps traditionally portrayed as being bad people. Um, So in my case, the research that I did looked at um, empathy for offenders. Um, But it's quite interesting because it's relatively um, well known that it's easier to feel empathy for people who are like us. Um, But it's interesting that um, uh, you 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 can also generate feelings of empathy towards people who are less perhaps typically like us or that we see as being less like us um, through reading initiatives. Um, But also in terms of the current situation, there's quite a lot of kind of potential impacts on well-being of reading. I read an interesting piece of research the other day that suggests that actually uh, reading books makes you live longer. Or sorry, I should say there is an association between reading books and living longer, um, where the the researchers have obviously controlled for the, the big other variables that you might expect to vary with things like that, such as socioeconomic class and those sorts of things. But it's quite interesting.
0: Uh, it it is uh, uh, absolutely, and I think that that reference to, to, to books is something that I was thinking about as you were talking earlier. Because if you think about, you know, say a great novel like Pride and Prejudice, it's it's there's this clash of different stories and different perspectives all coming together until eventually the sort of the the truth of a particular form emerges. Or, or equally, uh, you you may be familiar with uh, The Master and Margarita, uh, one of the the classics of, uh, of Russian Soviet literature, which is in itself almost a surreal story of what is happening out there but it is so surreal and absurd yet it's also actually trying to make sense of the purges in uh, in late 1930s russia in a way that couldn't be done overtly or, or directly yet the people who were reading it at the time would have would have, would have known what the, the story w- was about
1: i mean there's been a there's been a proliferation of research psychologically believe it or not into the harry potter books so um the Harry Potter books are a great example because they have a lot of, kind of, factions of different types of characters, you know, the Dementors, the Wizards, the Muggles, um, and there's some really interesting research that's been done. A lot of psychological research has been done. I went to a conference, I think it was probably last spring, and I couldn't believe how much research has been done into Harry Potter. Um, But basically finding that, um, you know, it, it has potentially, Uh, Positive impacts in terms of reducing prejudice, reading about all these fantastical other types of characters, seemingly making us more receptive to people who are who we stand in a standard way, see as being less like ourselves.
0: That's uh, absolutely interesting. I didn't realise that. And if we if we perhaps take all of those those areas what what do you feel would be say the, the relevance for someone working in an organization whether policing or business or university or otherwise or, or most particularly for for a leader how how could they use this finding or this these these findings of storytelling
1: well i mean I'd, to to an extent i think it, it you know it's it's obviously up to leaders to, to kind of cherry pick the things they think most fit but i think from my point of view i would never underestimate the power of stories to train people Um, you know in terms of training people for organizations one of the theories about stories is that they are kind of a simulation of a social world if you think about it they're a completely safe environment for us to try and understand what other people are thinking trying to achieve etc and certainly um, in my experience when training has come alive it's when we've used these simulated scenarios in order to train people and get them to practise communication skills um, on actors, but in an environment where everyone kind of knows what their role is, they know what the story is. And so I would say one of the big impacts for me is on um, training. And I think the other thing to think about that is that if you think about using kind of simulations or, almost like thought experiments about a particular scenario or story they're a very good way for organizations to do anticipatory thinking so to start to plan for future events that might happen Um, and particularly you know given the current um situation um that we're in with the pandemic to to really think about the worst case scenario um, and to think about the 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 bad possible outcomes um and so i think the the use of story for training and for future planning in a business is is one very immediate and very kind of practical and applied thing that i think leaders of organizations can do um i think you know that there are there are potential um benefits in terms of thinking about communication strategies um i think it's very difficult to sort of cynically manipulate the use of story in a very effective way um you know and i wouldn't recommend that that leaders try and do that but i do think if you're trying to communicate with people Um, from a leader's point of view, telling stories and being, you know, open about your own experience is a powerful way to communicate and often more persuasive than trying to persuade people through a factual argument there's one of the things i haven't mentioned is that a number of psychologists linguists and um uh, other scholars in this area do believe that there is a kind of different way in which we process stories so one of the reasons we're more receptive to persuasion via story than via factual information we don't put up the same barriers when we're engaging with a story than we do when we feel that someone is trying to sell us something or trying to persuade us to a particular point of view so I think the second point is that that, that stories can be persuasive um, ways of communicating, uh, but I would caution about the use of trying to sort of do that, um, you know, cynically if you like. And then I think the very final thing is just, you know, in terms of all of our own well-being uh, at the moment, uh, in particular, the kind of therapeutic benefits of, of reading um, fictional uh, stories um is is something to bear in mind for kind of <laughs> both uh yourself and your staff um as well Yeah,
0: and, and and it strikes me you know in in terms of those particularly the pers- persuasion piece there's possibly also link to 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 motivation and, and and i mean that in a positive not a cynical sense but you know what what, what if someone is working for example for a financial institution are they more motivated by adding 0.01 to the bottom line or enabling people to be financially secure and buy a home? You know, which, which one is it? And and you can sort of tell tell those tell, tell those stories. And I think if you look at, say, uh, some of the advertisements on, on television, perhaps, for banks and financial institutions, it is often very much about, you know, we will help you buy a home and, you know, achieve your dreams as opposed to the, you know, the the percentages and the numbers and the so on. Although obviously that will that will appeal to, to some as well.
1: Mm. And I suppose we're in a, I'm just sort of thinking as I'm speaking here, but I, I suppose we're in a slightly odd situation at the moment where we are, weirdly bombarded with science, if you know what I mean. I mean, not I don't say inappropriately, but just unusually bombarded by science at the moment. And we're all engaged, probably most of us who are, p- are pretty interested in the crisis that we're in, we're engaging with a lot of science, um, scientific information. And I think at the same time, that also certainly in me um, kind of motivates me to also kind of balance that up by having some complete escapism that's that's much more creative and that's much more non science based because i'm consuming more general science media than i would normally definitely in the current situation
0: and it is that 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 perhaps uh, that 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 escapism that the people are are possibly looking for whether it is an, a novel or whether it is a movie a romantic comedy or something which is completely fluffy and frivolous and possibly not even very good but it's an escape it's telling a story it's
1: just, yeah and there's all there's it. there's also a lot to be said um a really I love this little fact so I'll just s- sort of squeeze it in at the end but um uh that there's interesting facts about the relationships that we bond with people, people that we see on the television. So it's called having a parallel social relationship. So I might feel that Joe Wicks and I are probably destined to be together. <laughs> but Joe Wicks definitely doesn't know I exist I've formed a parasocial bond with him because I keep watching him every morning and I think he's cool and I almost feel like he's my friend and actually the psychological research says that is very much a a phenomenon we form relationships with people on the telly in films etc and it makes us feel less lonely and it's good for us particularly in situations where we can't have social contact
0: I, I have to admit, Zoe, I didn't pick that you and, uh, you and Joe Wicks were uh, were destined to be together, but uh, it's an interesting takeaway from, from the conversation. Well, on, on that note, uh, I might perhaps draw things to a close. Thank you very much for your time, Zoe. It's been, been great speaking to you and uh, learning a little bit more about your research uh, and about the power of storytelling. So thank you very much.
1: No problem. Thanks very much for having me.